Ready graphics? Ready theme? Nineties, we had a lot of female characters in various forms of media who were like strong women, but they were written by men most of the time and still are. And it was like, what is a strong woman though? And it's like someone who's mean and not a team player. And I feel as if what I loved about Murphy and how she felt like an, an antidote to the kind of options I felt like I had been given. Hi, I'm Jesse Mullins. And I'm Lauren Milberger. And welcome to part one of our interview with Sarah Marshall. We are so excited about this interview. We have been wanting to do this for a while, as has Sarah, and we had so much fun. When we say there was so much that we talked about that we had to make this two parts, we're not kidding. We covered everything we had hoped to talk to her about and then discovered a million more that we're going to have to talk about again on the next one because two episodes were not enough for us. We talked about... Sarah's love of Murphy Brown, obviously. We talked about 90s culture. We talked about feminine representation through the media. We talked about the 1987 year of the bimbo. Personally, I appreciate that we talked about Lord of the Rings. I know you'll all be surprised to hear that. So new listeners to the podcast who are fans of Sarah's and her podcasts, she has You're Wrong About, which she will talk about, and Why Are Dads. Welcome. We just want you to know that you can definitely keep up with both parts of our episodes, whether you watched Murphy Brown or not. We, of course, would love for you to experience Murphy Brown, but it is currently not streaming. So we would love if after this episode you are super jazzed about Murphy through the way that Sarah talks about it, through listening to how the show crossed over with so many aspects of her podcasts. We would love for you to help us in a campaign. We are tweeting or Instagramming at all of the streamers, particularly HBO Max, because it is a Warner Brothers show. So Hulu, Amazon, Netflix, all of them to get Murphy streaming. We hope that if enough people let them know that they want to see the show, that it'll be worth it for them to pay for the music rights, which is what is holding up the show from streaming. So if you can do that for us with the hashtag Murphy streaming, we would really appreciate it. We hope you enjoyed this interview with Sarah and stay tuned for the second part coming soon. Will the mystery guest please sign in? Hello, my name is Sarah Marshall and I am a Murphy Brown fan since high school. Ooh, we love that. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great way to introduce yourself. Yeah. We do love an origin story. We really, really do. Fandom begins. <laughs> now, do you want to tell our audience who may not be familiar with your podcasts a little bit about what you yeah, do? Yeah, I have a podcast called You're Wrong About that I co-host with Michael Hobbs, and we talk about misremembered recent history a lot of 80s and 90s media, a lot of news magazine type stories, a lot of stuff that both of us kind of remember seeing on TV when we were growing up and trying to get the full story now. And then I host another show called Why Are Dads uh, with Alex Steed, and we watch movies where fatherhood is some kind of a theme and talk about masculinity, and we just did an episode on The Dark Knight. Oh, yes. Oh, nice. <laughs> Although, I can't wait for that one. That was really one. fun. Yeah. That one definitely has dad issues. It definitely, there's, I feel like that movie has yeah. one or two things to say about masculinity for some reason. Just, just, just a, a couple. <laughs> one of the major reasons we wanted you on the show, other than being a Murphy Brown fan, which we love, is that our shows have a little bit of a crossover, particularly yeah. with You're Wrong About. And I found you guys because, which of course then I forwarded to Jesse right away, was someone's doing a Murphy Brown Dan Quayle episode. We have to listen to this. <laughs> uh, we have a special thing on this podcast. Anytime Dan Quayle gets mentioned, we say mm -hmm. ding. So I apologize <laughs> yes. if I can't help myself throughout this. 
<laughs> Ding! It's going to happen a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yes. It's there's two reasons. One because he's a dingaling, mm-hmm. just a dingus. And we said his name so many times, we felt we needed some sort of elevator ding like the show. But I don't know if you realize, before Dan Quayle went into that crazy speech, which everyone told him not to do, mm-hmm. there was at least one Dan Quayle joke for almost every episode of season hmm. one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No one knows if he knew that, mm. that they were mocking him, but they mocked him a lot. And I feel like that is one of the reasons I love the show is that and the reason I do my podcast now is as a kid, just kind of trying to understand not just actual news stories, but sitcoms. Because I also loved designing women. I watched mm-hmm. a ton of TV land and Nick at Night. I would just watch anything that was on. And a lot of sitcom writing, and I think Murphy Brown and Designing Women both did a really good job at this, is is like very much about what people are thinking about and what we want to debate and characters kind of taking on these rules that I think seem maybe weird if you're used to the TV of today, which existed in a world where like we didn't need sitcoms as public forums for discussion. But like, I think we did at the time. I remember that was something we discussed when the revival was coming up was Mm. what is Murphy Brown during the social media era? Yeah. How quickly can we turn over? How the idea of being a topical show during a time when everything, the I mean, the news cycle has just shrunk to incremental portions compared to what they had. So this right. idea of what is what is this world now when everyone's on the topic, the morning of it, it may have changed. The water cooler series, you know, mm-hmm. that's, that's not a thing anymore. Whereas if you're watching something, you know, week to week, you're going to the next day because everyone watched it, you're going to talk about mm-hmm. it. And that's something that doesn't happen anymore. And I think that there are are a lot of people who, because they didn't grow up on it. I mean, that's sort of the discourse now on Twitter about WandaVision. Mm. Well, one article, I Mm -hmm. should say. So maybe I shouldn't give it that much power, but brought up this discussion of this reviewer, if you guys aren't familiar, who doesn't like the fact that it's episodic, Hmm. even though it is a show that is paying tribute of an episodic series. Mm -hmm. It still went over his head because it's someone who's not used to that idea of having to wait every week. And how so just episodic in that it's coming out in weekly installments? Yes. Mm -hmm. Wow. Okay. So this is interesting because, like, when. Yeah. So, A, I have always, like, there are some areas where I just enjoy being a crotchety killjoy, and this is one of them. I've never liked the term (laughs) binge watching because it suggests to me that there's something shameful about watching a lot of TV, which I disagree with. Um, and, And I remember, like, the last show that I watched all of like in one day, because I don't do that very much. I just like to watch the same movies over and over. But when Escape at Danamora came out, I remember watching, and it's like 10 hour long episodes, and I watched them all in a day. Yeah, and I was like, this has not been a binge. Like this has been this very beautiful, stately, sort of sumptuous, sad (laughs) (laughs) feast that I have spent the day like locked in my snowy house with and I don't feel nauseous and I don't feel regret and I don't feel remorse like I just I'm happy that I had this day with this show but I remember when you know when we first had this concept of like Netflix is putting a show out and you can watch all the episodes all at once or in stages either way I was like no I hate this because the point of TV first of all I'm like a Rottweiler I like having limitations imposed on me yes. um yes. you know and you know uh 
And I like having to think about what's happening week by week. And But the main thing is that I was like, we can't talk about it if there are people who just jump in and watch the entire thing yeah. and then are like, I know everything that happened. And people are like, no, I haven't watched it yet. And just we have this like, it's like st- like starting the Boston Marathon, you know, it's just like people are going to be in very different places throughout. And that um, was bothersome to me because I've always felt like one of the best things about TV is that you get to talk about it as it happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there are like, I remember when I was in high school, I loved um, Felicity and I remember watching mm-hmm. the Felicity DVD box sets. And there are like, there are things that this gets around if everything comes out at once. Like we have lost maybe the need to have those weird like previously on Felicity. And then, you know, because if you tried to jump in and you were watching and it would miss the past week, you'd be like, what's going on with Noel? You know, but so I feel like there is storytelling that opens up if you don't have to catch people up every time and they can Mm -hmm. see it more as as a continuously unrolling scroll. But like, yeah, that's just that's like a yes and thing, not like an instead of thing. Like, I love being lowered and immersed into sort of a purposefully slow cinematic world and there yeah there definitely is tv that does that but but then i think you know what i love about sitcoms and i think people don't want to come out and admit that like what they're making or what they love is a sitcom sometimes but like sick like as an intensely lonely child like the tv people were my friends and the sitcom people were the best (laughs) the very best friends of all yes yeah well, on that subject, I would love to hear your Murphy Brown origin story. We sort of hinted on it yeah. a little bit about Nick at Night, but yeah. So I it it was probably I was studying for the SAT, so I feel like it was two thousand four, and uh, and the and it's funny because like there's these eras of broadcast history, right? So you're like, well, there's the time when Murphy Brown was on, and that was historically significant, but also something that is like now out of reach is the fact that. The show hadn't been put out yet on DVD. Um, I think it would be really soon after that. And, you know, I'm sure that savvier people than I knew how to download TV stuff in 2004. But it really, you know, essentially, like, I could see what the TV played or what was available in some kind of physical format. And so I remember TV Land, I'm pretty sure it was TV Land, at one point was like, we got the Murphy Brown rights. We're going to start playing Murphy Brown. And it was like they promoted it. I remember the promo clips they used. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember the phrase, I feel good, like I knew that I would. Like, I think that was used in ads for it. And and I just have this memory of, like, sitting on the couch in my parents' living room in my pajamas, like, working on my SAT prep book and watching, you know, maybe the first week of episodes of this show and just feeling, just really falling in love Um First of all, with Murphy herself, because I guess, you know, obviously I have attempted to emulate her in my own ways over the years. But just like loving that this was, I think that in the 90s we had a lot of female characters in various forms of media who were like strong women, but they were written by men most of the time and still are. And it was like, what is a strong woman though? And it's like someone who's mean and not a team player. And I feel as if what I loved about Murphy and how she felt like an, an antidote to the kind of options I felt like I had been given is, you know, A, she was conceived in the mind of a woman, which makes all the difference. And B, that like, okay, so another show I loved when I was in like middle school inexplicably was Aaron Sorkin's Sports Night because it, you know. You were in the right house. Don't worry. (laughs) You were in the right house. Oh, yeah. 
we're we are this is a Sorkin household. Welcome, yes. And it's and that was another thing where it was like, yeah, they started playing it on Comedy mm-hmm. Central after it didn't succeed or you know got canceled, and they were like, we're gonna play it in reruns. It'll be great. And it came on probably close to The Daily Show. And I loved that show, too. I loved that it was a workplace family show. It just made me so happy to be in that world and with those characters. But I definitely absorbed this concept of, like, Felicity Huffman is a character who's, like, great at her job, but a total mess everywhere else. I think they actually have, you know, Jeremy say that at some point when he's writing a letter to his sister. And, you know, she's, like, amazing at work, but a basket case everywhere else. And I remember when... um, the was it the newsroom the show was jeff daniels yeah when that came out i remember they did kind of that same i feel like the newsroom used a lot of the tricks that uh worked in sports night but that had become a little bit overused and hacky by then and they did the same thing with emily mortimer's character but it was just like i was older it didn't it wasn't the mechanics of the ride weren't as well disguised and i was like this is insulting like it's okay for a woman to be good at her job and like not have meltdowns about everything else. Like you don't buy competence in one area by being incompetent elsewhere. And so anyway, that's a long winded way of saying that I just loved that Murphy was like successful and tough and (laughs) humiliated Mm -hmm. men for a living. And also like had this wonderful work family and is a dimensional character and possesses, you know, humility and, has a painter who kind of lives with her. That was a big thing for me, too. <laughs> yeah. I just want to find my own Eldon. <laughs> Eldon is truly everything. He is just the best. I think we all want to find our own Eldon. Well, something that really sort of, um, you know, inter- intersects our shows, as I mentioned, is yeah. this, you know, this sort of fallen women of the 90s. You wrote oh, that yeah. wonderful article on Tanya Harding. Uh, but something that I love that you said on the show was you called 1987 the year of the bimbo. Yeah. And that's actually what it was called. I didn't even come up oh, with it. Oh, it was. Oh, I didn't realize that. I completely. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? Oh, no. No, that's real, Lauren. <laughs> that is so real. It's like the year of the woman. It's like, that sounds like a, a millennial joke, but they just called it that. <laughs> oh, that's horrible. I can't believe And I'm actually surprised I didn't realize that. You know, there's a lot going on. But what I think is so interesting about that, which we can discuss, is that so Murphy Brown premiered in 1988, which means it was in development in 1987. Yeah. And, and something else also you've touched on the show is the idea of this is around the time when news people were becoming stars. And how can they separate mm. themselves from the story when they are part of mm-hmm. the story? And that is definitely what sparked Diane English to write Murphy Brown. I wonder if this was in kind of, I don't want to say retaliation, but sort of a, um, <laughs> <laughs> it feels it, right? But a reaction, that's a better word, to the oh, year yeah. of the bimbo. Well, and specifically, I remember that in the first episode, I feel like they basically combined the Dukakis and Hart campaigns. They did, yeah. Because they had, yeah, because they had a female vice presidential candidate who was alleged to be having an affair with Tony Goldwyn. Mm -hmm. And by the way, like, I haven't seen that episode of TV in 15 years, but I remember it was Tony Goldwyn. Of course, I I remember, you know, like, it's, and do I remember, you know, when the trash gets picked up? No, but it doesn't matter. (laughs) Like, your brain prioritizes the important stuff. And um, (laughs) if you're listening to this and you're 16 years old, just like learn the stuff you really need to remember now because after you're 20, it just really starts to degrade. Um, (laughs) Yeah, and I feel like that was like directly in response to that election cycle. And 
and specifically the three the three women who are alleged to represent the year of the bimbo are Donna Rice, who was the woman who was photographed with Gary Hart next to the monkey business, which she should never name, name a boat. Um, no, yeah. And who and he was, you know, this attractive uh, potential front runner presidential candidate who the narrative was that his campaign was destroyed by basically the fact that he was asked about, you know, this attractive woman and like, was, was he fooling around with her or not? And he was like, that's not anyone's business. And it was like, no, it is our business now because it's the late 80s and it's our business now. Um, yeah. And I feel like, and then the other two women are Jessica Hahn, uh, who came forward saying that she had been sexually assaulted by Jim Baker, but is now mainly remembered for posing for Playboy. And uh, Fawn Hall, who had a yeah. pretty tangential role in the Iran-Contra scandal. Now, Fawn Hall is actually the only one that I don't believe we've spoke, spoken about on the, on the show. Yeah. Uh, hmm. Do you want to tell our audience a bit about Fawn Hall? Yeah. I mean, so my co-host, Michael Hobbs, is, is better at Fawn Hall studies than I am because he researched this. But, you know, my basic understanding is that, you know, the Iran-Contra scandal was basically about the idea of can you commit war crimes but say that you did it out of the goodness of your heart and get away with it? And the answer is basically yes. Um, yeah. I don't know if they're war crimes, but they're definitely crimes. Like this involved like selling arms to fund illegal proxy wars. And again, I don't know if this is technically illegal, but it doesn't matter, to fund proxy wars against communism in Central America. And Fawn Hall was the, I believe, secretary of Oliver North, who was one of the major players in this um, and who has bounced back <laughs> fantastically well. And she was this beautiful young woman who apparently had followed her boss's orders and smuggled documents out of her clothes and, you know, helped him to cover up for the fact that he had been a very, very bad boy. And she became, I think, really the the focal point in the American imagination of this whole scandal because she gave testimony and she was pretty. And yeah, she, you know, this idea that I think there's, you know, these all involve the idea that like if a story involves a pretty woman, mm -hmm. then everything that happens is her fault somehow. Yeah. And actually, I feel like Corky is, you know, at the start of the show, like, is a bimbo character who has to find her role in the world of this workplace. And I love that the show gives her that. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that on the surface, if you saw sort of a summary or a write-up on what particularly the pilot was about, I think you would assume that, oh, well, this is a dynamic between this smart career woman who has worked hard to get to her job and then this dumb, quote unquote, or bimbo character mm -hmm. who is just got there based on her looks. What we love about Corky is that if you look deeper... She wants to learn. She wants mm -hmm. to be better at her job. And then what ends up happening is she's the only character on the show that has a, a huge full arc. I mean, that's what we believe mm -hmm. because she changes. She she almost becomes a little bit like Murphy, but on her own terms, I think. Yes. One of my favorite things in the in the show, actually, is that the second episode of the show is Devil with a Blue Dress on. And it's mm -hmm. the show that starts with seeing these two blonde women in this office, putting on a blue dress with the same, you just see these two bodies putting the same thing on. And it's an entire focus of comparing them. And this idea yeah. that there's only enough room for one at the top. 
and, yeah. and questioning that, which I think is a, that that is a subject matter that would only come out of a female showrunner and writer's room. Yes. Well, and that also reminds me of, um, well, I just read Run to Win by Stephanie Shriak and Christina Reynolds. Um, and, you know, it's basically the Emily's List guide to running for office as a female candidate, a female Democratic pro-choice candidate, or encouraging women to run and getting them to run. And it really... You know, and a lot of the points are like, if there's no one in government who looks like you, like, ask why that is. Like, that doesn't mean you shouldn't be there. It means you should. And talking about, you know, really in the past five years, this kind of remarkable surge in visibility that we've had of women elected to national office who are allowed to, you know, or not allowed, but who just were like, I don't think playing by the rules will ever get me anywhere, actually. And I can just have to be myself. And, you know, I'm going to suffer ridiculous um character assassinations no matter what I do. So I might as well, you know, do a live stream or whatever, or wear jeans or have my baby on the Senate floor with me. And um and I and it really made me think about this feeling that I had kind of I was born in 1988. My mom was born in 1948 and she went to medical school in the 70s when they had kind of just started letting women in in significant numbers. And she was in a class that was, I think, 25 or 30 percent female. And from her, from my own neuroses, from the media that I was raised on, from all kinds of sources, I received the message that I think is part of sort of the, I don't know, just the the 20th century. Um, (laughs) That like, if you look around and realize you're the only woman in the room, like you have won, you have succeeded, you have like finally climbed high enough that you are the best woman and you have proven yourself that way. And it really took a long time for me to realize how damaging that is and how like growing up believing that trains you, you know, to just fear solidarity, basically. And I just feel like establishing very early on in the show, like, no, like she's not an enemy character and she wants to be a really good reporter. And like, she cares about this and she just is caring in a different way, but like, we're not going to do, you know, this is not the character that you maybe are prepped to think she is. Yes. Well, and this idea that, that there are only, you know, a, at most a handful of female types that can be portrayed that the idea, I remember having this conversation. uh, So I'm in grad school as a performer and I remember being spoken to about the idea, like you're coming in and just know you're going to play a lot of moms. And I was like, well, that's fine, because I don't think any of these characters are defined by mm. that fact of their life. But this idea, you know, the the first wives club of like the babe, the district attorney and yeah. driving Miss Daisy and this idea of yeah. like having career women. Well, there's only one type of career woman, and it's going to be this third wave feminism idea of become as masculine as possible to have a career or be a homemaker and being able to watch for me growing up because I was I was born in 86. My mom was 46. and um, Growing up as a kid watching the show and being like, oh, I could have a career and be soft and feminine Mm. and want a family or I could be what is considered, quote unquote, more masculine and I could be focused on that and still have that option. Like the idea that the the maternal figure of Murphy Brown Mm. is Murphy, you know, the idea that this is the woman who has a baby on this show was hugely impactful for me as a young woman Mm. that you like. You aren't the second she becomes a mother, it's not like she stops being Murphy Brown. Yeah. 
I mean, speaking of grad school, I remember like I was in the humanities and it's just at the time for me anyway, it was just this kind of thing in the culture of like, don't have a baby until you get tenure, don't have a baby until you get tenure, don't have a baby until you get tenure. And then I had this professor, and then I had this professor who had had babies during her PhD and was having her third baby just as we were taking this course from her. And I was like, oh, so you actually can physically have a baby before you get tenure. It's not like there's a cervical cap that they install before tenure and then they unscrew it, <laughs> um, you know, but just like, and just the, yeah, I mean, it's a cliche, but like, you can't be it if you can't see it. And the idea that motherhood is somewhat incompatible with work, not because of the mother herself, but because of the workplace expectations, you know, it's like, that's still, I don't know. I think that Murphy Brown still comes out ahead of a lot of media being made today in some ways. Oh, 100%. I'm curious just because we're, I know we're going to jump around on some of these ideas Mm -hmm. that Lauren and I had to talk about, but just because we're talking about the the maligning of women, which is one of (laughs) my favorite topics. um, Truly, I just love to bring it up. You know, we were going to talk about like the 90s folks and we were, I I was looking at like Mm. Kathleen Sullivan, who uh, was basically turned into uh, she got old and fat and then maybe she was sleeping with someone and they tried to ruin her career and horrible. But now in a weird twist of positive fate that we didn't get to record mm. the first time we met up is now we have we're in the framing Britney era yes. of looking back on the way that media has treated men. And so I'm just wondering about your thoughts mm-hmm. on what's going on right now. I think it's great. You know, I mean, whenever there's a big, you know, a special or a series that comes out and people are like, oh, my God, oh, my God, what was I doing? What was I thinking? Or when, you know, Zoomers are like, what were you guys thinking? And we're like, I don't know, man. I don't know. Um, It's wonderful. (laughs) And I feel as if that is like another milestone um, for the public. And just because I think we learn through repetition um, and I certainly am fond of repetition, as I've expressed through my TV watching habits. And yeah, I think that just if you hear with all these different stories, like the thing we did wrong was just listening to the voices, both external and internal. <laughs> I think that it's meaningful to realize again and again that the thing we did wrong, both as a culture and perhaps as individuals, if we had skin in this game personally, is, you know, listening to that voice that says, like, if it feels good to see this person as subhuman, then by all means continue because she has all the power because she's so rich and famous and you have none. And I feel as if, you know, on a broader scale, like, it's 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 impossible to say uh, how much good and bad and the balance comes from just having the kind of technology we do, but I do think that like we we know in a way that we didn't before that pe- a lot of people paying attention to you at once isn't necessarily an asset. And it is interesting to look at the way that I, I I'm looking at some of these people that we've talked about, and even you know the looking at the female journalists that that often come and guest star on Murphy Brown as well, the Monica Lewinsky's, the Anita Hills, the Anna Nicole mm-hmm. Smiths, and this idea of. A lot of this felt like fact hmm. because enough places picked it up and ran with it like it was fact that people felt like they had done the laziest due diligence by, well, multiple major stations are saying this, so it must right. be true. And this this thing that I do find heartening about the, the Twitter era, even though Twitter tends to give me anxiety uh, as an actual mm-hmm. human, but this idea of you know having a platform for more people to question who we're listening to. 
especially when Mm. just like these shows are being written by men about quote unquote strong women. A lot of the things we're hearing from are from male mouths. Mm. Mm hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, I know that a lot of this discourse that's been happening and listening to your podcast and even just the Anita Hill movie that HBO did, I started to realize that even though I consider myself a forward-thinking feminist, that the media as a young child had still gotten into my head. And subconsciously, there were certain things that I thought or subconsciously were framed that Mm. were not true. Uh, the one that comes up the most to me right mm. now is Anita Hill, but it's it's or even mm-hmm. Amy Fisher. Mm-hmm. There was so much I didn't know about Amy Fisher. I grew up in New Jersey, so her being from Long Island, that was a huge story here. I knew a girl named Amy Fisher who couldn't order pizza <laughs> because everyone thought that she was uh, pranking them. That's like Tony Hawk trying to get a rental car. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> So it's really scary that even if you think, oh, well, this media has not affected me in a bad way, when you're very young, it really sort of seeps in to oh, be yeah. fact you th- or you see as fact. Well, and I feel as if it's it's not even facts so much as attitude. Like the facts definitely get mangled intentionally and unintentionally in the telling. Even if you have a ton of media, it turns out, and a ton of uh, instantaneous media. But, you know, I I feel as if, too, like one of the things that we get with these scandals, and I'll always speak in defense of scandals and gossip, like we need scandals. And I feel like one of the things the Trump administration did was give us weirdly like a wholesome uh, way to get scandals, because like, you know, there are certain people affiliated with the Trump administration who I think are vulnerable, like Claudia Conway comes to mind. But basically, if you want to be scandalized by a judgmentalist Steve Mnuchin, like, have a ball. You know, like, his power is not illusory, is it? Or it wasn't. Or it isn't. Um, You know, but I think, like, one of the ways that we use these scandals to, you know, we look at them to learn what our place is in society. We kind of see them starting when we're very young. And especially, you know, we figure out, like, who am I allowed to sympathize with? Like, what is bad behavior and what... And there is, you know, this very pervasive idea that we show what kind of person we are <laughs> by how we, we react to a story. And we have to do that performative, you know, Monica Lewinsky is bad. It's bad. <laughs> and stuff like that. And I think it's uncomfortable to sort of sit with the idea that, like, I don't have to pass judgment on these people. It's really not my business. Like, if they're not hurting anyone except themselves, <laughs> then, like... It, I am not outing myself as less able to survive in the world or less possessing of a moral center by by refusing to say whether what someone did was, you know, unconscionable or conscionable or whatever. Like my reaction to all stories is like, well, people do everything you can think of. And sometimes it happens on Long Island. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Something I was thinking about, I actually did a, I was working on a project uh, in the fall and I was looking at, for some reason, me when I was 23 years old, which I really did not need to spend extra time looking at myself 12 years ago. But uh, Mm. something I found interesting is I started looking up headlines that had to do with people being 22, 23 years old. And the first two that came up were Monica Lewinsky and uh, Sydney Leathers, who was the, uh, that's the pseudonym of Anthony Weiner's. Uh, supposed text friend and so the thing I found so interesting is that 
both of these females had interviews where they talked about how young they were yeah and how they're like i'm i'm a good person like i'm involved Mm -hmm. in this thing but also like he was the adult in the scenario Mm -hmm. and then immediately juxtaposed with the uh, either the heading of the words in front of them on the interview or them actually being said to their face that they had destroyed someone's marriage oh my god and i was like Oh, but I grew up with that, that idea of a homewrecker. Like that phrase was something I grew up with and never questioned until I was an adult. Oh, yeah. Which is fascinating, too, because we live in a country where like people are kicked out of houses for not great reasons. Houses go into foreclosure. We have all this predatory lending. So like there are homewreckers in this country. They're not women (laughs) who have affairs. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Literal homes are being wrecked. (laughs) Oh, that's great. Yeah. And also, and again, like, I, yeah, this is an idea that I grew up with, too. And, like, it it takes two people to have an affair. Like, I don't know why this was such a difficult concept. But, yeah. And also, I remember, you know, I really got obsessed with uh, learning about and trying to understand and eventually writing about the Tanya Harding scandal when I was, like, 22, 23 years old. Tanya Harding was 23 at the Lillehammer Olympics, Nancy Kerrigan was 24. And I, because I, at the time I was that age and I was like, oh my God, like I'm a baby. And so they were babies. And you just don't notice that when you're a child. You're like, they're adults. It's fine. They can handle themselves. Yep. And I think just as, you know, having been a child in the 90s and then looking back at everyone whose scandals I saw when I was a child and they were an adult. And now as an adult, I'm like, oh my God, like none of you were old enough to be, and like they, you know, and to have no support. Like if you're, you know, a congressman who gets stuck with his hand in the cookie jar, like you have staffers, you have lawyers, you have advisors. Like if, you know, I think one of the key things too is that, you know, the women who become, you know, the homewrecker or the bimbo or whatever, like they're without a support network Mm -hmm. in this story. Mm -hmm. I was just working on on a project where every character except for one was named by a title. And all of the females were named by their relation to the male roles. So it was a mother, a bride, a daughter, that kind of thing. But if the men were gone, they had no identity. Mm. And these ideas of being a bimbo, being a homewrecker, all of these things are based in a gender role. Yeah. That has to, that has, it's through a lens that is not their own. And it, we're all getting limited by a stereotype at some point when we're being received. But those particular phrases are so highly gendered. Mm that it's it's interesting to look now through today's lens mm-hmm. at them or to hear them come up in comedy. Yeah. And it's actually funny because the word bimbo originally just meant like a strapping baby, um, which makes mm-hmm. sense. <laughs> and then it migrated over to like, like you know, <sighs> the scary feminized. Yep. <laughs> mm-hmm. I saw an interesting <laughs> went down a hole on social media where they were talking about what is the feminine version of emasculate? Hmm. Defenestrate. <laughs> Some English professors were coming in and were saying, actually, it is emasculate. Hmm. It's to take someone's power away. Mm, But we created this word when men were the only ones with power. (laughs) So we put the male mask in there because we've been emasculating women forever. Mm. So there isn't a term for that. It's only for men because they were the only ones with power when this word was created. Wow. Yeah. Right. How do you emasculate a woman? You just take away her little tub where she brews beer until she gets accused of witchcraft obviously (laughs) it's a beautiful tub i love my tub too 
Are there any particular episodes of Murphy Brown or maybe just like storylines you remember that you really mm. liked? I know it was a long time ago, so it's okay if you don't. Oh, um, God, I'm trying. I feel like, oh, well, there's an <laughs> the episode that jumps out at me is the one where basically they decide to become to try out being trash TV to like become Donahue yeah. or whatever. It's really good. And yeah, we love that one. Yeah. And uh-huh. just sort of and I feel like that um I just love it when when a show gets overt about like what is happening in media and where is our place in it. And yeah, that was like that comes to mind. And then another thing that is not an episode, but is a weird TV spot. And I wonder if this made it onto any of your tapes at the time. Is that so? Okay. Christmas Eve, 1989. My parents taped the broadcast of the version of the Christmas Carol starring George C. Scott that aired on Coin TV, which is the Portland CBS affiliate. It's the best one. He's the angriest Scrooge. He's great. And also, like, George C. Scott was like, give me clothes. I'm not wearing a robe for this whole movie. (laughs) And they did. (laughs) They were like, Scrooge has clothes on. Don't worry about it. Um, Yeah, I love it. And I I watched that movie every (laughs) Christmas of my life. And and it also has all of the taped commercials, the news bumpers, all the stuff from... Christmas Eve 1989. So it's like Ceausescu has been ousted and Noriega has been ousted because that's what Christmas is about. And and then at the end, there's this ad basically about like the CBS lineup and how we're going to help you get through football withdrawal by watching sitcoms. And so there's like, I think, Miles and... Oh, I forget who, but like a couple of characters they have just like in the stands being like, we'll trade... You're something for our zingers. Like, don't worry. We're going to be here to take care of you now that football is gone. And it was so funny because I watched that tape every year and I never knew who those people were. (laughs) And then the year that I had found Murphy Brown, we got to the end and I was like, oh, my God, it's a Murphy Brown bumper. Things are making sense. I understand culture. (laughs) I'm catching up. So that was one of those where they had all the characters from the CBS like in one big commercial. I think, yeah. Yeah, that was such a thing that networks did. Yeah, I remember those. And there was like a theme song Mm -hmm. usually because there were a lot of these sort of CBS, particularly where, Mm -hmm. you know, the look of CBS, like there was always some sort of song. One year they took Get Ready because the, the Temptations had just been on Murphy Brown. And they had them just change the lyrics and sing it about the CBS characters. And they were always doing something fun, you know, like, oh, look, I'm playing pool. And then here's a character from Evening Shade throwing a ball. I love that. Oh, it was such a specific point in time. <laughs> I know that people have to do ridiculous stuff under contract for being on shows now, but I mm-hmm. feel as if you no longer get asked to, like, just pretend mm-hmm. you're having a big party with all of the other actors on the network yes. you're on. Just you're having a great time. Go. <laughs> yeah, you don't. <laughs> Oh, and then I also had, I bought at some point in high school, I found the cassette tape that was, I think, the first soundtrack they released to Murphy Brown. And it was like, and they did that thing. I love this thing that they used to do. And they did it. I was trying to listen to something recently that had the same feature. It was a 90s. They did it at least until the end of the 90s. And then I think we moved on. But they definitely did it in the Pulp Fiction soundtrack. That one was big for me. In high school. But yeah, the thing where you would get a movie soundtrack and they would be like, we're just going to give you little bits of the movie to hear because we know there's no other way for you to get it. And uh, have fun, kid. 
don't spend it all in one place. And so they did that in the Murphy Brown soundtrack. And I think they, one of the inserts they had was Murphy saying that Miles only knew what Motown was because of the raisins. And um, yeah, just loved it. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that particularly because I knew where you were going because I knew that line and a couple lines in that soundtrack before I ever saw yep, the episode. Yep, huh? Love those California raisins. And they did that on the Friends soundtrack too. So yeah, I had like vignettes memorized mm-hmm. from that. Yeah. There's something, and I miss this, there's something about like this thing of having to get the thing you love via audio. Um, and actually, I was just reminiscing about the 1977 Hobbit animation, which to me is the one true Hobbit film. Um, oh, I, I still have nightmares from those goblins. I'll bet. Yeah, they're, I mean. It's my favorite. They're terrifying looking. Like, are they amphibians? Like, what's, like, Gollum is amazing. The, the Greatest Adventure is one of the best songs yes. ever sang. Oh, my God. And so I found, like, I was looking for a way to watch it on YouTube, and I think you basically can, but something that someone else had done, which was easier to avoid being a copyright infringement, is that at the time, you know, because this movie aired on TV on, I think, Sunday of Thanksgiving weekend, and then like, okay, it's gone. There are no VCRs. It's over. And so they released an LP that came with a booklet um, of art from the film, and then you could basically, you could just listen to the entire film. It was just a long, it was just the film itself with dialogue and music and (laughs) I put it on the other day and I like just cried like a lot and not in a bad way. It was just this intense feeling of like familiarity and gratitude. And I don't know, I'm, I'm curious about how it's going to be for people who like didn't grow up as even I did with this experience of like, if, if something is on TV and you miss it, like you might never see it again. Oh, right. Yeah, or no, you will, yeah. but it's because someone yeah. decides to put it on and you have to catch it or you have to get your dad to program your VCR, which let's mm-hmm. face it, isn't happening. Um, and and that you would yeah. have to just find these weird workarounds or just commit things to memory because you loved them so much. And uh, yeah, I feel like we still we bring the same needs to media, but it I'm curious about what that's like. I feel like just the the longing <laughs> was special to me. I remember once telling my dad to like, Mm-hmm. turn on labyrinth because it was airing on tv like way too late for me to be up to see it but i was like someone in this household is going to watch some labyrinth even if it can't be me <laughs> <laughs> yep that was, labyrinth was my first favorite movie because we're i found out we're the mm-hmm. same age it's so interesting to me like even the things that i grew up thinking were comfort things that now if i i tried to show mm. one of my nieces the dark crystal oh and i was like i love this movie and it messed her up and i was like no but it's comfort oh okay or like I was, well, and I was trying to listen to the, um, my mom tried playing this for me when we had a big power outage when I was a kid. It was the BBC uh, radio adaptation of The Lord of the Rings, which is on 13 cassettes. And, mm-hmm. and I remembered getting through some, yeah. like some distance into it, but I was trying to listen to it the other day. And I was like, oh, no, I got out of town like four minutes in because that's when they start playing, you know, audio of Gollum being like given the third degree. And I was like, nope, bye. But, like, show me those goblins and I'm a happy camper. <laughs> well, it's so it's so interesting you bring up that particular LP. Uh, so Lauren knows this. I Most of my identity is centered around the Lord of the Rings. And uh, my birthday every year in March, we do a full marathon of the extended oh, editions. So and we make all of the meals and it's a uh. thing. But when we went into lockdown, 
part of my coping, while I still felt comfortable running outside before we were like, oh, don't run through each other's breath, uh, was I would run and I ran uh, to that LP. Uh, because it was comfort. It was like, it's again, yeah. to that idea of you know going back to things that we know what to expect. I was like, that wobbly voice yeah. singing The Greatest Adventure just felt like home and safety. And even the, go- like, the Goblin oh, yeah. song was great. It was inspiring. I'm running away from Goblins. Like, but every the way our brains go back to these things that I, to your point, that I think held a higher stake in my mind and my heart because I didn't mm, know when it was coming mm-hmm. back. So you were so focused yeah. on it because you had to absorb it. Yeah. Yes. Totally. And and it and those are the things I think of when I'm in need. Yeah. And and just that and I'm sure there's something intrinsic to childhood too where just if if a memory is that deep then there's just something maybe intrinsically emotional about it. And I think like thinking back to just like why was I crying that much? Like and then at the end of it I just like sobbed. Like I really like sobbed when Thorin died and just the whole story of it and I feel like to me there's something extremely special about um realizing that you can connect with who you were when you were like four you know or that you can see the same images you can hear the same sounds um you can access that little person and like remember what was scary and what was exciting and what you wanted and how you reacted to things and uh yeah I'm getting weepy I just I love I love tv so much Thank you so much for listening to part one of our interview with Sarah. Stay tuned for part two, which will be dropping soon. If you would like to follow the podcast, you can follow us at Murphy Brown Pod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We're also at murphybrownpod.com. Or you can email us directly at murphybrownpod at gmail.com. Yeah, we would love to hear your thoughts on the episodes or any questions that you have. Talk soon. Bye. Bye.